Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. everybody and welcome to the resistance recovery podcast i'm really excited to have my friend brian francis culkin who is also an author and a filmmaker and an astrologer and a few other things and um really excited to talk about his newest book which is on somebody that we're both uh very interested in somebody who probably doesn't get as much play as he should and that is the late French thinker, René Girard. So, Brian, what's the name of this book? The one that I just wrote? Yeah. It's called uh, René Girard and COVID-19. Yeah. It's, so, folks, this is a remarkable book where he, Brian, uses Girard's theory of mimetic desire to explore uh, really global capitalism in the age of COVID. So maybe we should just start just by talking a little bit about who Rene Girard was and why we find him so compelling. You want to start? Or? Sure, 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 sure. So Girard was a, a, um, a French intellectual. He identified as an anthropologist. Like, you know, things today are so fluid and open that it's tough to stick to one discipline. So it's just as easy to call Girard, maybe a, a theologian or a philosopher or some kind of critical thinker. But he, he taught at Stanford for a long time in the anthropology department. But he began his career as a literary critic. And his, that drew him paradoxically to these fundamental anthropological questions of, you know, what is a human being type, type of thing. And Girard, um, and that eventually led him into his, which he is probably most famous for, his very provocative and innovative and really radical reading of the New Testament. So that's like, when you think of Girard, you you think of him in three different facets, I think. The first is as, in his younger career, as a literary critic, and then moving into his, you know, with his famous book, uh, Violence in the Sacred, which is like kind of a classic anthropological text. And then going into his later stuff where he's focusing on, where he's kind of linking all this stuff together in his work on Christianity and the New Testament and this kind of new interpretation, this kind of anthropological interpretation of the New Testament. Um, so his, his work focuses on the fundamental question of desire. And when we say, like, it's, it's funny if maybe 10 years ago, if somebody said desire to me, I would be like, oh, yeah, it's things you want. And you don't. And even maybe people listening right now might think, ah, desire, yeah, no, no big deal. We all desire things. But I think that when you, at least for me, and, and not just Gerard, but you know, reading people like Zizek and, and other people, and then, and then certainly having my own new encounter with the Gospels as well, you, you kind of realize that desire isn't just, you know, I want things. It's literally the fundamental question of what constructs a human being. 
And Girard's, one of his central ideas is that desire is not, for, first of all, he, he distinguishes desire, as do most people, from like, like basic biological needs, like, you know, food, water, stuff like that. Like, you know, wanting to eat, to live is not desire in the way that Girard uses the term. Um, but what, what Girard says is that desire is not a psychological product. It's not something that, like, we don't have desires. They are entirely and completely social in the sense that we only desire something because we see somebody else desiring it, right? Like, we, we don't have desires of our own, which is interesting because when you think of, let's say, someone like Tony Robbins and, like, the whole network of personal development and the kind of new age um, you know, I guess pseudo spirituality that now per permeates 21st century America, you always get this thing like discover your purpose, discover your desire, you know, find out what you really want. And Gerard would say, like, that's impossible. Like, you, like that's, a, that's a ridiculous idea to tell people because you're going to lead them on like the ultimate wild goose chase. And so what we have to start with if, if we read Gerard and we apply Gerard, is that desire is a social phenomenon. We desire only what we see others desiring. And that and that's, sounds so simple, right? But the consequences of that are like immense, like unbelievably, because when you realize that, you can all of a sudden escape from so many things that may have been bothering you, right? I mean, so many of the pathologies that are present in a culture like America, in the 21st century is precisely because this desire has become, you know, for lack of a better term, radicalized in the sense that it's just like everywhere. Like we want followers, we want money, we want crypto, we want, I mean, even to a point, like we want to be enlightened, right? It's like we, like everything is this matter of wanting what the other wants, right? So when we can become conscious of that, we have the capacity to leave the game. And, and really, like, we win the game by losing it, right? By saying, like, kind of throwing up the white flag, say, wait a second, I don't want to play in this game anymore because no one really wins this game. This is like a circular game that no one wins. So um, I guess that's, a, you know, just a, there's a lot we could say about Rene Girard. But yeah. that's like a, that's, that's a fundamental cornerstone is that desire is not something that you have. It's something that you get when you're, you know, like out with your friend, like, you know, in a technical sense, it's like through the process of socialization, but it's just like, you know, you're on Facebook, you're hanging out with your friends. Like this is where you pick up what you want. You don't pick it up from your psychic architecture. Right. Yeah. The, um, to give a shout out to my teacher who I interviewed earlier on here, uh, Eugene Webb, he was one of the guys who popularized Girard in America and he, he taught the theory like this. He said uh, two parts. And the first part was because desire is the only psychological motion, it gives rise to and animates the self. And that's, you know, that's easy enough to understand. But the second premise was the radical one. Furthermore, your desires are not your own. Indeed. And Indeed. he really would speak, I mean, Gerard did too, but what, what, Webb emphasized was that this is a metaphysical desire, meaning it's a desire for a, 
a plenitude of being. It's born of a sense in, of, in, of lack. Indeed. Yeah. It absolutely. I mean, it's the desire is the way. Well, I mean, I think we should even move further back. It's like, why do we have desire? Right? Like we have desire because no human being is coincident with themselves. And, and what I mean by that is like no one equals themselves. There's always a piece missing. And what we try to do in our life is to become whole, right? And this is a big thing in the you know, contemporary new age discourse. Like you want to become whole. Well, why do we like why aren't we whole to begin with? You know, like what's the problem? Like, you know, we're we're in a body, we have brains, we have we have a biological organism. And so desire is the process, or I like that what Eugene uses, the motion that we use to complete ourselves. And, you know, this is where we can tie it back. You know, you might have some people on your listening right now who aren't religiously minded. But when you think of a concept like original sin, people have a very kind of a uh, deformed idea of what sin means. Sin, sin does not mean like you're a bad boy or, you know, a bad girl or you did something bad. Sin is like this basic idea that a human being doesn't equal himself. There's a piece missing, like there's something off. And we try to fill that gap with desire. And a lot of times we end up doing bad things when we try to make ourselves whole, right? Drugs, you know, we go out and, you know, whatever, you know, we break the 10 commandments, so to speak. We, we do things that maybe we shouldn't be doing in a strategy to become whole. But so it's, it's just this idea that human beings are not whole de facto. It's not like, it's not like we're traumatized and all of a sudden we're not whole, or it's not like we have this, these like terrible experiences and all of a sudden we lose our balance and we have to find ourselves again. No, 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 no. We are, we're born not whole. Like that, like we come into the world missing a piece and desire is that motion or that energy or that metaphysical power in which we try to become whole, in which we try to fill that piece that's missing. But the problem is, is that desire is a reflexive phenomenon. It's like, we don't know how to fill it. We, have, we don't know what, like, we don't know what to do. So we learn how to fill it by watching what other people are doing. So it's just like, this architect, this like global architecture of desire that we're all living in and we don't know it. And I think what Gerard, I mean, to me, Gerard is the, the key thinker to move forward in the 20th century, like more so than, you know, just list all the great philosophers of the past. I mean, Gerard to me is like the guy because his work on this, even more so than someone like Lacan, like nails it. He, 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 and, and, and also too, it's not nearly as cryptic and confusing as someone like Lacan. Um, I think Gerard <laughs> yeah. is, is, is ultimately, is, is ultimately a, a, yeah, yeah, of course he's difficult. Definitely. He's a difficult thinker, but he's, but he's also a simple thinker and he's a straightforward thinker and he's not, you know, disclosing all these ridiculous concepts that you need, you, know, you need to read a paragraph 30 times to understand. Right. He's, he's He's giving it to us in a relatively straightforward way. He's very loose. In, in a way that we can understand and, and, and apply in our lives too, you know? So let's keep unpacking this. So we have hello? this. Hello? Are you there? Yeah. So we have this. Yeah, I'm listening. Yes. We have this sense of lack. And we look toward others who seem, who appear to have found that thing that we're looking for. 
And so Gerard or says- Not necessarily, or, yeah, go ahead. Well, Gerard calls these people our models. Yes. So somebody may seem to have plenitude because they have a certain woman or a certain job or a certain amount of money or occupy a certain status. And we say- Or a well, certain pair of jeans or a certain pair of sneakers. That's right. Or whatever. And we think- you know? we, <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the list things that can turn on desire are infinite. You know, it's different for everybody. I mean, you can have and you see some kid across the street wearing these really clean, you know, whereas for other people, they might, might be on Twitter and say, ah, if only I had 100,000 followers, then everything would be great. And they look at this person that has 100,000 followers and they look at them and say, that person has it all together. They, you know, this is how I want to fill my, my own gap. So the, the, the ways and the strategies by which human beings try to fill themselves or complete themselves are, are infinite. I mean, and they're, and they're very interesting too. And of course you have destructive ones like, you know, I'm going to do heroin, right? I mean, that's a classic way to become whole, you know, like drugs is a, of course, very destructive way, but ultimately drugs are very, very linked to desire. And that in a way almost then, then with something like drugs, you get into like biological issues too, with the, with the body's desire things too versus simply a psychic or spiritual process you know and so we we start imitating these beings around us who seem to have it and he calls this mimetic desire so we imitate the desires of others because we misapprehend them we think they have the thing when in actuality they don't have the thing any more than anyone else Yes. And Gerard is very um, interesting when he talks about we have external mediators and internal mediators. So if my, father, yes. if my father appears to have more being than I do, it's natural for a little boy to imitate his father. And that's actually healthy. But when the Indeed. desire becomes, and that's a, an internal mediation, or is that external? That's it. When, when it's a healthy, it's external. Yeah, that's right. And when it's, when, yeah. But then internal means that there's nothing to stop us from converging on the same object. There's, there's nothing to stop us from rivaling each other or competing with one another. Yes. So, so a I mean, job like, or a woman or prestige uh, or. Indeed, the list goes on. A pair of sneakers, you know, the list goes on. And so in, in that internal mediation are the seeds of violence. Indeed. Indeed. You want to you talk about why Girard thinks that's so basic to human society? Yes. So, you know, now we're, we're getting like really into Girard right now, like the like core Girardian ideas. But Girard would... You know, for Gerard, violence is like fundamental to human society. And Gerard would also say like the whole point of human society is to prevent violence. Like that's like the point of human society for Rene Gerard is to invent strategies, first and foremost through re religion. And then that extends into in the present day 
cultural and social and economic processes to prevent violence. Because what Gerard will say is that two human beings that desire the same thing, that cannot, that cannot reconcile this desire, will ultimately lead to violence, unless there are social or religious or some kind of safeguards that prevent that possibility of enactment. Right. And the mechanism that we relied upon for millennia and still do, but it's changed, is what he calls the scapegoat mechanism. The scapegoat mechanism. Yes, that's part. That's you. I mean, I would probably say the, the, the core mechanism is sacrifice, but the scapegoat is the, the way in which the sacrifice is acted out. Like, so, like the core, the core mechanism for, and, and, and again, if somebody's listening to this for the first time and doesn't know anything about Rene Girard and hears the word sacrifice, like that sounds so um, primal and uncomfortable and weird. And yeah, it sounds weird. I mean, when I first started reading Girard, he's talking about sacrifice. It's like, what is this guy talking about? I mean, this is like, you know, it's like ancient Aztec stuff, but the way that when we have to think about sacrifice, we're not thinking we, we have to think about it as a concept, not necessarily as like a, you know, an Aztec ruler sacrificing children. It's a, it's a concept of how we can extinguish desire. It's the way in which a, a community that's being overwhelmed with rivalry and, you know, internal dysfunction can release that. Um, entanglement of, of desire, for lack of a better term, through the sacrificial act. And we do that by finding someone or something that we can blame for our inability to exhaust our desire. Like when people are like angry or frustrated or having, a, or, you know, just like really angry, they don't think of it as like, wow, I'm really burdened with desire. They don't think of it like that. They think mm -hmm. I'm angry. Or I'm, I want to kill somebody or I want to, you know, I just, it's there. Like they don't, very few people are like, wow, I want to blame all my problems on that person because I am personally overwhelmed with my own sense of desire. That, very few people think that, but that is in fact what's happening at like the very core level. Of course, people are angry about things and sad, and I'm not saying that, but at the very core energetic or spiritual level, it's a, like the, the human subject is being overwhelmed by the other's desire, and they need a way to get rid of that. And the way most people get rid of that is finding someone to blame it on. That's, I mean, it's completely natural. It doesn't make you a bad person. I mean, it's a, this is a fundamental feature of the human psyche. We have we have to devise ways to unload this unbearable load of desire that's what we do and we do that for, from a girardian perspective in ancient societies and archaic societies through the sacrificial act and then as societies as societies progress we we integrate that into social economic and technological processes right but in an archaic society, the being who is sacrificed takes on an unusual role in the society. So there's this desire building up, this rivalry building up, this sort of and, violent tension building up. 
Yeah. Then it gets discharged upon the sacrificial victim. And in doing so, yes, it restores everything to peace and makes the victim something like both evil and sacred at the same time. Evil in the sense that he was the cause of our problem, our tension, but sacred that once we've disposed or sacrificed the victim, peace has been restored. And, he, and the, the, the victim becomes re retroactively sacred, yes. That's right. It becomes, it becomes sacred, sacred after the fact. And for many, for millennia, human beings could commemorate primordial sacrifices uh, through 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 mythology, I mean, mythology, like for Gerard, yeah, 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 like 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 the core of mythology for Gerard, the core of mythology, is the is telling the story of sacrifice through literary means that that in a way make us not able to comprehend what actually happened, right? So, like, yeah. for and, and and this is how Gerard distinguishes. Christianity, which on the surface for Gerard, I mean, Gerard would be the first person to say that on the surface, Christianity is like the ultimate myth. It's the ultimate, you know, you know, mythological narrative. But this is where he distinguishes very firmly, like the ultimate line in the sand between mythology and Christianity in the sense that mythology doesn't allow us to recognize what's happening. Whereas with Christianity, for the first time, we're able, we're, we're given a story where we can see what the hell is going on. We're able to see not about God, but about people. Like, and, and, and this is the great, I think, the, the real fascinating way that Gerard reads the Gospels. When we read the Gospels through Gerard, we don't really learn about Jesus or God. We learn about ourselves. We, we learn what we're doing. We don't necessarily learn some great, yes, of course, we learn about the teachings of Jesus. Of course, that's there. But what we really learn is about who we are. That's, that's, what, that's what, and so Gerard calls Christianity an anti-myth. It's like, it's the ultimate anti-myth for Gerard. Whereas all of, you know, global mythology, whether it be in ancient Greece or Africa or, or India, it's, it's mythological in the sense that it, prevents us from understanding this fundamental mechanism to human society, human community, and ultimately the human psyche itself. Yeah, he, he often will talk about that the Judeo-Christian, it starts happening in, in the Hebrew religion, but... Uh, indeed, indeed, indeed. But then eventually what, what, it, what it's revealing is he, he'll call it the truth about the innocent victim. Um, the innocence of victims finally gets revealed in the Judeo-Christian matrix. So the sacrificed being doesn't, is not evil in any, any sense. He's simply um, just that, a sacrifice to restore peace. And by by that by that token, he's innocent because it's not that victim that's causing the rivalry and the unbridled desire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and 
And the other thing too, that we should, when we say about like innocent victim, it's, we, we can't get hooked up on the idea that about innocence, right? Cause none of us are innocent, right? So, I mean, not, and, and that's, and that's an important point to make that none of us are innocent, but at the same time, no one deserves to be the victim for a community's point of discharge of desire. Right. Right. Uh, it's, I, I, I think that's more the point than in the sense that the victim is this like person who's never done a thing wrong in their life. I don't right. think he's saying that at all. He is. He's saying he's he, yeah. 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 They are not, that's an important. They are not innocent of the they are innocent of the rivalry intention. It, by intention yes. In the community. Yes. They, they are innocent of of having an entire society or entire community or entire country or entire world saying you're the fault of, of everything. I mean, that's what they're innocent of. They're not in, innocent of, uh, you know, stealing money from their mother's pocketbook when they were 10. And what's interesting is Gerard says that most often the sacrificial victim is someone who belongs to the community, is in our midst, but is somehow a little bit different they are they stand apart in some way i loved it when he analyzed um william golding's lord of the flies which is really testing the thesis that human beings are naturally good in a primal state of nature and so if you don't haven't read the book basically these kids wind up on an island i read it in so, junior high but i, I not not a long time well it's fantastic because it's yeah. really testing the noble savage thesis of rousseau and they're all on this island. The idea is there's no adult supervision. There's no adult world to uh, infect them. And what do they do? Well, they, piggy. they, yeah, <laughs> they tribalize and they identify Piggy, the fat yeah. kid, as yeah. being one to be the sacrifice. So it's a beautiful Indeed. literary illustration of Gerard's thesis, which he does with many novels, actually. Sure. I mean, sure. I mean, he's, he's, you know, like, like I said, he starts out as a literary critic and, and really that was like his, his reading of Proust and Dostoevsky, that was, and, and Shakespeare too, reading those people was, that was what gave him the idea of developing his anthropological theory of desire and sacrifice. It wasn't like he didn't get this idea from a, uh, like informal anthropological training. It was, it was, it was a literary discovery that was then applied into the social sciences and into theology as well. Right. So when we get to Christianity, you suddenly have this different figure who's kind of like one of the Hebrew prophets, but he's actually more than that. And the figure of Christ um, in the Gospels, it says will reveal those things that were hidden from the foundation of the world. Indeed, that's a key line. That's one of Gerard's key lines of the, of the, entire, of the entire Gospels. And so, I, will utter, I will utter my mouth in parables. I will reveal things hidden since the foundation of the world. And what is hidden since the foundation of the world is, of course, the, this mechanism of desire, scapegoating, sacrifice, and also, I think, too, the, the idea of sin, the idea that 
it's, it's not like we're bad for doing this. This is what like we're supposed to be doing. Right. And it's like, but we have to somehow rise above this. So I, 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 and I I think that's why, and this isn't just Christianity. I think all religions, what's great about religions is they have this important concept of forgiveness that they know that we're basically stupid, that they know that we're basically completely self-centered and we do these horrible things and we're always given another chance. And I think that's, that's not unique to Christianity. You find that in all religions. What might be unique to Christianity is that this core mechanism is disclosed for the first time. Now, not many Christian thinkers saw this for the first time. In fact, as Gerard said, the first person to see this was in fact the most anti-Christian writer ever, Nietzsche. I mean, Gerard says that the first person who really saw the core of Christianity was actually the greatest critic of Christianity, Nietzsche. So he saw that, Nietzsche saw that at the core of Christianity, it wasn't necessarily a question of God. It was a question of like sacrifice. Like that was at the core of Christianity. And when, and you know, Nietzsche's whole project, of course, was to just destroy Christianity and in a way bring back sacrifice in a somewhat underhanded way. But this is why the Nazis love someone like Nietzsche because it, it, it gave them that permission. Right to reenact sacral I mean, I, I've read Nietzsche, not all of his stuff, but I've, I've read a few, few of his books and I've, and I've read many commentaries on his work. And yeah, he's, an, I mean, he's definitely an interesting guy and he's definitely a brilliant guy, but he's also a, a full-blown psychopath, a full-blown psychopath. And I think to Gerard's credit, he, re- like, even though he totally disagreed with uh, Nietzsche's conclusion on Christianity, he gave him the hat tip of saying, well, this guy got it. But, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas didn't get it and, you know, St. Augustine didn't get it, but, but Nietzsche got it. And I think that uh, speaks to Gerard's character and his tremendous integrity in how he, he operates. Yeah, I think, I think Nietzsche's part of his enduring uh, fascination, especially for younger people, is that he, he really wants to re-paganize the Western world. I oh. Mean, a Christianity is a religion of victims because it reveals... Indeed victim it was the stoics called it a religion of women and slaves and the reason yeah. why they called it that is because it was a religion of women and slaves mm-hmm. and so nietzsche said it was a religion of resentment 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 at the powerful and uh nietzsche but seemed I mean, to you know- believe that it would that it had a a weakening effect on civilization christianity because it it rid us of these noble virtues, these heroic uh, pagan virtues, and and I I also think though too it's important to distinguish in a way like because in a way Nietzsche might have been onto something in, in criticizing the form of like you know eighteen eighties Lutheranism in, in Germany like that may have been kind of boring and you know as many people said like Kierkegaard the that type of Christianity was a kind of a, uh, a very pale imitation of what true Christianity is. So I sure. think Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's Christianity critique of Christianity not, not only goes to the core of Christianity, which I would probably strongly disagree with, but, you know, his, he, he may have been kind of right about, you know, typical, boring, you know, church-going Sunday people and, uh, you know, like, 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 like 
the bourgeois Protestant German church, you know, like, so he, he may have been onto something there, but I think that his fundamental misreading of the, of what him and Girard both tarry with is where the problem is. And you know, what, what, what Nietzsche basically does, it's, it's a cowardly move because he, you know, the, the heroism of Christianity, he sees as its most repulsive and degrading feature, but it's like, what he, I mean, he's like the ultimate. I mean, he wants to be in the crowd, like cheering on people getting sacrificed. I mean, to me, that's the ultimate cowardice. That's the ultimate cowardice is being part of the crowd and, you know, piling on people and, you know, being a tough guy by uh, by by bullying people. Whereas Christianity, at least in the way that Gerard reads it, would, would be the act of heroism because you're you're defending the victim from being scapegoated by the desire of a community. And that takes real courage. That takes real strength. That takes real integrity to do that. Anybody can pile on it. I mean, look at Twitter. I mean, Twitter is so Nietzschean in its logic. It's just finding somebody and like bullying them and doxing them and harassing them. I mean, that's so Nietzschean in its logic, unbelievably Nietzschean. I mean, it's, 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 it's sacrificing people to further the, the desire of the crowd versus stopping it. I mean, Nietzsche is all about desire, this kind of let it go, man, like let the, and, and like not seeing the violent consequences and the terrible consequences that can lead from this unleashing of mimetic desire. And the no. other thing about Nietzsche is he doesn't even understand mimetic desire. He thinks desire is like, in a way, almost like Schopenhauer, like it's this will from within us, mm -hmm. right? It's just like, he, he doesn't see it as being a mimetic phenomenon. It's Right. Being reflexive is being intersubjective. He sees it as like this kind of this kind of this titanic force that's just like moving through us. He doesn't right. see the re he doesn't see the reflexivity of it. Yeah. Um, so the one thing that Girard is very clear about is that the scapegoat sacrifice mechanisms since the advent of the Christian era are losing their hold. That doesn't mean that people aren't still scapegoating like crazy, but he means that the revelation of the truth of the innocent victim has entered, has, has created a sensitivity in, uh, in, in, in culture at large, but in Western culture towards the victim. Indeed. So, so paradoxically, Gerard would say that things like feminism, labor rights, uh, social, social safety nets, uh, public education, all these sorts of things, free medical care, they are all born of a sensitivity to the victim that is itself a product of Christianity, even though- It's secular. It's secularized, that's right. Indeed. And many people who advocate those isms may not see any correlation with Christianity, but. Indeed, yeah. Gerard would say that the, the Christian effect on Western culture, whether it is conscious or not, is undeniable. And the signature effect is this progressive concern for the, for the quote unquote least among us. And that is moving through history. And it's, you know, Gerard will always say like, when in history did we ever care about you know, like, like, did the Egyptians care about poor people or women or, I mean, 
no. I mean, like, of course not. They didn't care at all. You know, it's like, it's, it's like you will be very, very hard pressed to find another civilization in history that cared about victims the way we do now. And that is, and of course, we don't call these people necessarily victims, right? We, we don't usually use that term, but yet we have this obsession, and especially now in the 21st century with, you know, things like politically correct or woke discourse, this victim concern reaches an apex. It becomes like a crisis. We're, we're like, we're, we're, we're obsessed in a way with victims. And Gerard would say that is a consequence, both good and bad, that emerges, whether we consciously or unconsciously realize it, from this Christian disclosure about the innocent victim. We, we, we have a sensitivity to victims, irregardless of the fact if we are Christian or not. We have it because we are part of a historical process known as Western civilization in which Christianity, at least for the first 1600 years or 1700 years, had a huge undeniable effect on that development. And yes, in the 21st century, we have largely shedded that in a, in a uh, you know, day-to-day perspective, right? But from a unconscious structural perspective, it's there. And it's, and it's giving a unbelievably effect on how we view the world, whether we realize it or not. And problematically, we still have not totally left the scapegoat mechanism behind. No, I mean, the scapegoat method has gotten even worse. It's it's because it's become integrated with the concern for victims. Like that's the there you go. That's the that's the whole problem with with what's happening right now is that we have this. Um, <laughs> again, we use these words with with Girardian um, with with Girardian discourse, and it's a little bit uncomfortable to say it at first. But you know, we say sacrifice. It's like, uh, I don't like that word, and I I don't like it either. It's a it's a scary word. But then we have to, you know, we have to say another word here now that is very much part of Rene Girard's work, and that is the idea of Satan. And for Girard, Satan is not a devil. He's not like a like a deep like when we think of Satan, we think of like a devil. And Girard would say, no, 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 no. Satan's not a devil. He's a he's a process of imitation, and he's very much linked to these things that we've been talking about, desire, scapegoating, sacrifice. Satan is this process that orchestrates that entire sequence of events. And so what, what's happening now is that, this is the way I see it, is what's happening in the world now is that the concern for victims, which is a noble concern, which is a, which is a brave concern, which is a heroic concern, has become pathological. It's no longer... The brave individual saying we have to watch out for the victim. Now it's like Twitter lynch mobs, and you know the concern for the victim is becoming a pathological feature of 21st century globalization. And right. this is dangerous, to say the least. Yeah. So to, this to say the very least. I think this and, is. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was. Go ahead. I was done. I think that this is where Girard becomes, it becomes really important to be clear about this because because of the Christian legacy, the scapegoat mechanism does not function the way it did. It cannot restore peace the way it did. No. So, 
in a an archaic culture, we could commemorate the primal sacrifice once a year around harvest or something, and it would suffice. But now we 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 can. It came to a point like when when you see these. Uh, um, can you hear me? I can hear you. You're breaking up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Um. But like when when you so so again back to the basics when we are overwhelmed with emotional dysfunction really and really what that is is desire right because at the at, at the core you can name twenty different emotional dysfunctions resentment anger rage whatever you know you, you can name them all but ultimately that is the 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 underlying feature of desire the underlying movement of this desire that we cannot be free of. What we want to, what human beings tend to do is they tend to try to offload these negative feelings that they have somehow. And the way that they traditionally have offloaded it is by blaming it on somebody. By, and we call that person the scapegoat. And prior to the Christian revelation, that was relatively successful. And you see that in like, you know, in in ancient Greece and, and all these different indigenous tribes where sacrifice was fundamentally part of the culture. Sacrifice wasn't a tool, as Gerard would say, it wasn't to please the gods. It was to fix the community. It was to, it was to relieve the tension that was building up in the community in the form of desire, which is, you know, these bitter rivalries and angers and, you know, people sleeping with each other's wives and stealing each other's cattle, whatever. This so sacrifice was the method that was used to restore the peace. Once Christianity comes along, irregardless of whether people are conscious of it or not, that stops working slowly but surely. It, it no longer works because there's something in our brain that says, "Wait a second, we shouldn't be doing that. That's not that's right. not cool to to blame everything on that person. That's there's something about that that's fundamentally wrong." But, but and we that, still keep doing it. I guess. We, 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 we still keep doing it, but what happens is it becomes integrated into social and economic processes. Like, for instance, slavery. I mean, slavery is the ultimate scapegoat. I mean, look at the entire, look, look at the history of America. For the first 200 years of America, we had the ultimate scapegoat, not in the direct archaic sense of like sacrificing black people, but in a social sense that we we in, we integrated them into a social process of slavery. And that is and that's the really weird thing that like people in the South could be like these devote Christians, but still have slaves. That's right. that's a that's say that's a, obviously a complete distortion right. of Christianity. But it's not. But, but the reason why they're able to do it is because they were integrating it into a social process versus this like direct violence. I guess that's how you'd say it, you know? Right. And it's, that's right. And so, and then, and then the, the Christian heritage, you know, a lot of people don't realize how much abolitionism was, was, you know, the point of the spear with that was often, you know, Unitarians and Methodists and such Christian, Christian activists. But then once slavery is abolished, then it gets integrated into industrialization, industrialization and, and, and tenements, and, and child and, labor and all this. Exactly. Stuff. Exactly. And now it's integrated into the very heart of capitalism where we, but, but, but yet, even though global capitalism in the 21st century is de facto 
facto a victim machine. We still try to find, I mean, like I thought the way half of society viewed Donald Trump was fundamentally scapegoating, even though Trump was a jackass and a loudmouth and did all these terrible things. You could see the scapegoat phenomenon in Donald Trump in the sense that the, the everything in the world that is wrong is Donald Trump's fault. Mm-hmm. Like that, like that is what's wrong. Like, of course, Donald Trump was, a, you know, not the best guy in the world. And of course, he said all these horrible things and did, whatever. But it's, at the same time, you can't blame the problems of the world on Donald Trump. It's not like it's not like Donald Trump is like the cause of, uh, you know, every wrong thing in the world. But a- again, when, when you would see these kind of like hysterical outbreaks from half of the country in the mainstream about Donald Trump, what you're seeing is a very, very ancient pro- you're, you're seeing like the ghosts of our ancient ancestors right there. That's not like a rational political deliberation. That is like scapegoating 101, like ancient Israel, ancient Egypt. I mean, that's like you're going back to the anthropological core of human society. And what's but, so, but, what's so and, shocking about it now, though, is that it keeps flipping and going back and forth. And it's, uh, you know, the, the QAnon people will scapegoat the Democratic establishment. And then and then the woke people will scapegoat much of much of history by canceling. Sure, sure. Oh, sure. And it's just like it. It's just got this um, feeding frenzy quality now. Um, Indeed. That's exactly what it is, because it's based on because the whole point of it is is what people are doing when they're doing that is they're trying to cleanse themselves. Like when 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 you're canceling somebody, you're engaging in a in a act of self-purification in the sense that you're dumping all of your stuff onto the victim. Right. right. And that and so that like what when people see cancel culture on Twitter and these horrible pile ons and these you know, these digital lynchings, what they don't, and, and yes, it's horrific, it's terrible, it's wrong, but what they often don't realize is the person, the people who are doing it, they get a sense of peace from doing that. Right, they, and, solid, and, and solidarity. Yes, and it's, and it's a solidarity of being able to unload your own desire, really the other's desire, to be more specific, the other's desire onto the victim, onto the person that we've elected. And again, the, the victim isn't necessarily innocent, right? Because D- Donald Trump was was anything but innocent, right? He wasn't. He, I mean, he did a lot of things in his life. But at the same time, in that process, he's innocent because no one deserves that no matter what. Right. And so, you know, what's really interesting is it harkens back to so much of the language of the Nazis, where the Jews were vermin, they were diseased, they were subhuman, they were a cancer in the community that needed to be cleansed. And Indeed. so that's that's this impulse to, to destroy, to cleanse, to project. And yes. It, 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 it was an act of, 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 it was a failed and evil act of attempted national cleansing. That's right. That's what it was, you know? And, and from a, again, from a Girardian perspective, what happened in, in, um, in 1930s Germany and in, into 1940s wasn't a necessarily a political deliberation. 
It was an anthropological process. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it had let, yes, there was a contingent political background in the sense that Germany was being overwhelmed by its economic situation following World War I, and it wanted the piece of the colonial pie, and it felt it was being outmaneuvered by England and France. Yes, that's true. Like there is a political dimension to what happened. But what ultimately happened was, again, an anthropological process of identifying a victim and discharging the community, or in that case, the country's built up frustration onto the victim. And the victim in that case, of course, was tragically and profoundly, um, you know, wrong isn't even the word to describe what happened then, were the Jews of, of Eastern Europe in the 1930s. So now we're getting to this place and where your book really, really, you know, addresses something very, uh, very directly and very profoundly. So Girard, and he didn't live to see COVID, he would talk about these mimetic crises spreading throughout a body of people, population, in, in plague terms. They were in terms that we hear very frequently now in the media in the age of COVID. And this sometimes the victim would be likened to a plague. Um, but other times Gerard is also using the term mimetic contagion. So Indeed. We're catching this off of each other and we're gonna pig pile or we're gonna go hunt the victim. And what your book says, which is just really, really profound, is that that, that side of it, this post Christian mimetic crisis is turbocharged in the age of digital neoliberal capitalism. So you want to break down a little bit? Well, what, what I would say is that human desire is fundamentally viral. It, it, It has a viral dimension. And the easiest way to see that is in, in the context of 21st century global capitalism. And, and, and the really easiest way is to see it in this, like this figure that we call the influencer. The influencer is a person who can activate the desire of, you know, if they have a million followers, they can do it a million people at once. So in the same way, a super spreader can, it's this idea that human desire has a viral element can spread to a lot of people at once. And what that really means is that we can look at some, like for instance, like a celebrity or LeBron James or like, we want what they have. We wanna be what they are. We wanna do what they do. And that desire can be disseminated. And in the age of electronic communication, it can, it can be zapped up to millions of people at once. And that desire, when it comes into us and it's unconscious, and we don't know that it's coming from somebody, that can cause a lot of problems. That can cause a lot of problems. And you know, I, I think it should be said first that capitalism in its initial configuration, let's say in the 18th century, when capitalism was first developing as a system, a lot of people, I think most notably the French political theorist Montesquieu, he was of the opinion that capitalism is, a, is gonna save Europe from these religious wars that were happening because it makes desire become part of 
commerce and trade and people aren't going to be prone to killing each other, killing each other in, in the way they were during these religious wars of the Middle Ages. So it, it should be said that the initial impetus of capitalism was to contain desire to prevent violence. That's the real paradox is that capitalism in a way is an economic system set up in the logic of what you called external mediation. It, it's set up in a way to prevent ourselves from being overwhelmed with desire because like trade's happening, we're buying things, you know, whatever. But what is happening now is that it, it's, it's, it, that is not working anymore. Like that, that promise of capitalism as a system to prevent violence is no longer working. And it seems that it is tending towards violence right now. Like that's like, to me, when you look at the literature of Silicon Valley, like, you know, Facebook's going to create an interconnected world. We're all going to be like one global family. Like that seems like an absurd idea right now to, to think that, that these technologies are going to create like this happy global community. What seems to be happening is it's creating like a global madhouse, like a global insane asylum. And that insane asylum, you know, we're, we're walking on the edge right now, you know, with COVID, with this kind of inflated stock market and this inflated, this unbelievably inflated crypto market that could tank at any moment, the geopolitical tensions that are rapidly rising across the world. We're like these tensions are, are resulting from this collective desire that cannot be exhausted. The desire of 7 billion individuals, the desire of countries, the desire of nation states, the desire of corporations, the desire of what I call in the book, this global architecture of desire. And unless we can, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, again, what do I know? I could be wrong. I mean, this could go on for 50 more years, but it seems to me it probably won't. And, and the main reason why it seems to me it probably won't is because of the environmental, like the environmental question. I mean, pretty much every an ecological theorist is basically saying, like, we don't have a lot of time left. And again, pollution, what is pollution? It's, it's the pollution, it's desire. It's, it's, it's the pollution of desire that, you know, smokestacks and toxic waste. I mean, this is not just material compounds. This is the residue of unfulfilled human desire that's being offloaded into, um, in, 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 into chemical products. So, right. but I, I, I think the idea though, is that we have to come to terms with, with who we are and what we are. And if we don't, we're going to be in big trouble. I think, you know, right. we're going to be, we're going to be in big, and, and we are in big trouble. And in a way we know we're in big trouble. You know I mean? I I've never seen such like um, commonplace apocalyptic thinking as we have now. You know, like normal, like soccer moms, like, oh, the world's ending. You know I mean? Like everybody knows that we're on the brink where when I was growing up in like, let's say the 1990s, that was reserved for like, you know, real kind of crazy people who would say stuff like that. Whereas right. now it's, it's become very much part of the not only mainstream client climate science discourse, but just pop culture like Saturday Night Live and the world's ending. You know what I mean? So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. people's dreams. It's an art. It's in TV and theater. Sure. Um, and we're also seeing something in this political landscape. So I'm 57 and I've never seen anything like this. 
whether it's Trump or um, uh, COVID, I am seeing relationships splinter. Uh, Indeed. Friends and family. And, you know, that's so, you know, that's so um, Christian. Sad. <laughs> you know, Christ saying that this thing is actually going to eventually start splitting people. Um, yeah, it's really, 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 really problematic. Um, what, 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 what Christ says, both in Matthew and Luke, he has this famous line, like, I, I came to bring, I did not come here. I'm, I'm paraphrasing now. I forget the exact, yeah. um, the, the exact words, but I, I came to, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, right? I didn't come. When, when I come, father will turn against son, mother against daughter, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And, and, and really what he, and really the way Gerard would interpret that, and, and even to an extent someone like Zizek would interpret it, but in, in a little bit different way. What Christ is saying, he's certainly not saying he came to make fathers and sons fight against each other. What he's saying is that ultimately there is going to be a line in the sand. And that line in the sand is you can continue on in the mimetic rivalry and the, and being obsessed with the desire of the other, really like, you know, being part of the capitalist system or you cannot. Yeah. Like that's like, that's the dividing line that he's talking about. And it's like, he's not saying I'm going to cause, like, yes, he's saying he's going to cause conflict, but not in, in a direct way. What he's saying is like, I'm putting a line in the sand. And it's like, if you go on that side, you're with the mimetic rivalry and this endless competition and this kind of perpetual unleashing of desire, or on the other side, you're going to come to not do that. And you're going to recognize the inherent relationship that you have with other human beings, that you're responsible. You're literally responsible for everybody you come in contact with. And, and that's and, what he's saying. And forgiveness is at the very heart of it. That's at the heart. It's at the heart of it. Yeah. It's at the heart yeah. of it. You know, and the, 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 the one thing I sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Pierce. The one thing that I wanted to say too that I didn't get to say five minutes ago, and I was talking about the relationship between capital, capitalism and desire, is that one of the problems that we think about capitalism is that capitalism is not an economic system. And this is where I think, like, you know, obviously I'm I'm not gonna be bold enough to say Marx was wrong, because Marx was right about a lot of things, but when, 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 when you go to like, let's say Harvard Business School or you get your uh, PhD at University of Chicago in economics, you're thinking of capitalism as an economic system. And to me, capitalism is more of a, it's like a, it's an architecture of desire more so than just an economic system. It's a, it's a system in which flows of desire can be channeled. And that's, and that's and if we don't start thinking about capitalism like that, we're never going to understand what it really is. And this is like why sometimes when people are Brian, why do you always write about capitalism? Why do you talk about capitalism? Like you're you're not like a like you seem like a like a pretty straight shooter, and like you don't seem like some crazy communist who doesn't like capital. And my and my, and my point is always like, yeah, but it's like I'm seeing it in a different way than you are. Like I don't see it as a strictly an economic system. I see it as more of like a, really like a spiritual process, but it's a bad spiritual process. It's, it's not like a, a good spiritual process. It's like the worst kind of spiritual process because again, this is the word that I invented. I 
I invented that term in the Gerard book. I call it an architecture of desire. It's a global system of desire. And unless economists and politicians and philosophers, whatever, like artists, right, whatever, start seeing it like that, we're going to, and this is why the leftist solutions to capitalism don't really work because they're seeing it like a a purely material Marxist sense of like, they're, they're seeing it in like pure economic material terms, but it's not just that. Yes, it is that. It is that, but it's also something else. Well, you it's a way very- of, orga- of organizing and aggregating and ultimately victimizing people through the um, organization of global desire. I mean, that's what it is. That's, that's what it really, tr- that's what it really is. And you make, you make the very good point that because it is uh, institutional structure dealing with desire, it's still sacred because it's bad doesn't mean it's not sacred. It's sacred cool. has nothing, sacred has nothing to do with good or bad in That's the sense right. of Rene Girard. Sa- sacred is a- anything that can prevent violence. Right. Anything. So it, it could be, I mean, like, so even, even the worst type of like, this is why sacrifice for Girard was seen as a sacred thing. It's terrible. It's inhuman. It's monstrous. It's, the worst possible strategy to deal with this problem, but yet it is still sacred. Right. Why is it? Why is it sacred? Because it prevents violence. It uses violence to prevent violence. That's and, right. And and, and 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 capitalism is in a way sacred because it, it's capitalism is always delaying violence. That's what it does. It, it's delaying violence by giving us credit cards. Right. By giving us more by giving us mortgages, by giving us Twitter right. accounts, by giving us it's, it's delaying the inevitable by when all of a sudden we're left alone with our own desire and we're like, oh, my God, I want to kill somebody right now. Right. You know, or, and, and or that violence winds up in some third world. Of course. Of, or, of, of course. Or or in, in a more brutal way, it delays violence by pushing it off into the far off corners of the world and like, you know, mines in Congo or in. And um, you know, sweatshops in China, it, it, private like, prisons it, it, and Texas. private prisons and all, and, and it does all these things. But ultimately, it's not. Uh, did you read the epilogue or no? I read the whole thing. Okay, yeah. so that's why I say in the epilogue is like ca- capitalism. It, it seems as if capitalism has won, but really, what it is is that it hasn't lost. Capitalism can never win, but it, but what it can do is. It can keep preventing itself from being recognized as the loser that it is. Right. And it looks like it it can never win. It it looks like it's going to do that until it's finally exposed. Yes. Yes. You know, and you you keep quoting the gospel where it says, can Satan cast out Satan? Yes. And it's the same thing. Can capital cast out capital? It's the same thing. Can capital. Yeah, that's right. Um, Capital. So one thing I think that might be really helpful as a way of kind of tying it up and finishing is that, and I'm going to kind of come at it from a slightly different angle. Um, In Waldorf education, one of the things that they teach is they say competition begets sameness. And the, the danger of competition is it renders the two rivals alike. It obliterates distinction. Sure. And, and that's one of the things that's very, very interesting about Girard, and you, you, you get on this really well, that we tend to think violence is rooted in difference. 
black, white, male, female, young, old, so on. But actually, what Girard is saying is, oh no, it's the lack of differentiation that actually causes. Or, or well, it's it's not so much it's it's the process of becoming sane. So it's like that's, that's right. it's like it's like so like when when white people like for instance in the horrible race riots of uh, 1919, um, you could say that like the reason why white people you know, attack because they felt that black people were becoming white. It, it wasn't because there were clear differences. It because people felt like there was a process of sameness happening. Right. And, and you could apply this to any type of conflict, you know, with the Palestinians and, and the Jews. It's not necessarily because like there are clear and healthy and respected differences. It's like they both want Jerusalem. That's right. the problem. It's like they both want the same thing. And you so can that's what you're right. That, that's what you're saying. It's like, Violence comes not when we have these like really healthy differences where I have my thing, you have your thing, and we're friends and like no one's arguing. It happens in the in the opposite way where we're either in a process of becoming similar or we both want the same thing. That's when the violence is turned on. Violence, rare. I mean, think about all the times in your life when you have a friend and you've like completely, you have like these different interests, but they they coincide nicely, and you're both. And why would you fight with a person like that? I mean, what the, I mean, there's nothing to fight about. You guys are getting along. You have, you have different interests. Like, why would, like, it's the same thing with like, just use a really crude example. Why would one guy is, has the love of his life. Another guy has the love of his life and they're hanging out. Like, what's the problem? Everyone's getting along. We're all, we all, we have these, these two great, the problem becomes when the two guys want the same girl, that's when the problem comes. Right. You know? So it's, so again, we're making these very elementary, simple distinctions but it's it's much more complicated than that and and can become more complicated than that especially in a corporate or geopolitical or technological situation right and that's why um and and this is like the thing that i always have with um kind of like right-wing conspiracy theorists that like you know silicon valley is this kind of organized no like twitter and face they all hate each other are you kidding me they all want the same thing they don't they don't they're not organized in some global like Every like when you get into those kind of levels of desire, it's ruthless, man. It's 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 winner take all. It's there, there's no uh, there's there's no sharing the the spoils. It's 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 a this is a winner take all game right now. And they understand the mechanism on some level, though, because, you know, when everyone is lining up and sleeping out, camping out in front of the Mac store, the Apple store for the new phone, they're really rendering them all the same. They're turning the consumer becomes yes basically Cap identical in their appetite. Yes, that will, that will last until that's satiated, and then they'll dangle another shiny object. And these Indeed. and these and and but now it's global. You know, now it's the 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 Mac stores in Indonesia, and it's in sure 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 this yeah Ca capital is a process of sameness. Because desire is ultimately a process of sameness, that's, right? That's desires right. desires converge onto the same object, right? right. And be, and be, and because what underlies capitalism is desire, then de facto capitalism is a system of sameness. And individuation, in a Jungian sense, would always be a process of differentiation. Absolutely, humanity. It's very hard is to honor and love the individual because of their particularity, because of their unrepeatability, because of their difference. 
and 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 even deeper than that, it's recognizing that, that difference is what saves your life. It's like that saves your difference. That 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 brings your being into into flowering is is that recognition. Well, that's fantastic. So we went we went fast and hard there, bud. <laughs> we we went we we went we went we we, did, we just did like a PhD course in Rene Girard right there, like for real. So for people who are taken with this conversation and want to know more about your forthcoming book, where should they go? My book will be available at the end of this month in May. So you can just you know Google and Brian Francis Culkin or put in the Rene Girard and COVID nineteen into Amazon, and it'll be available in Kindle and paperback uh, to purchase. And how about folks that are interested in some of your other work? Uh, those of you, by the way, who are in the recovery community, who will be probably a lot of this audience, I will tell you that uh, Brian's book on heroin is in my top five all-time recovery books, and he's keeping some really fine company. So I highly recommend that you have a look at it. But folks that want to uh, tap into your other writings, where, where should they look? Yeah, so all my right, I've, I've written now, the Girard book will be my 15th book. So I, I have 15 other books out there published. They're all on my website, brianculkin.com. And then I, I usually post maybe uh, two or three little micro essays on Facebook uh, every week. So if you want to follow me there. And, um, and that's it, man. You know, I, I kind of keep a low profile, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm down here living in South America and I have some other projects going on down here. And, and um, I'm, I'm not too active on any other social media site other than um, Facebook. And I, and I try not to be too active on Facebook too, but I get, unfortunately get my, my own mimetic desire gets drawn into it, unfortunately at times. But, um, but, um, but yeah, that's where you can find it, man. And, you know, th I, I appreciate that, that comment about the heroin book, because I know you are one of the most um, erudite people that I've ever met in terms of the field of addiction. So I, I, I don't know if you're just, uh, just, just saying that to me right now, but no, that, that's, 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 I do not blow smoke on that topic. I guarantee yeah, that that was an important. That's that's definitely. I I would say that book. Uh, well, I'm just finishing up my first novel, which is probably my favorite thing I've written. But but my two favorite books are probably the Gerard book and the Heroin book was just a blast to write. And because you know when I was in my 20s, I had a little bit of a run in with drugs myself. It was um it was therapeutic to write that book as well. And and being introduced to your little community with resistance recovery and other people that read it, it was, it's, it's, it's nice to see that it connected with people that have had, um, you know, whatever drug problems are interested in, in the American opiate crisis. Cause that's a, yeah, that was a, that, that was a fun book to write for me. Yeah. It provides much, much needed context. Indeed. Well, Brian Francis Culkin, this was a real pleasure. Um, and hopefully we will do it again before too long. Anytime, man. It's always great talking to you and uh, keep up the good work. And, and, uh, and yeah, it was, I'm, I'm really glad that you liked the book as well. I really did. All right, man. Thank you. Peace. Peace. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.